from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The issue over farm labor reform gets heated. Let's be honest with ourselves. The last 36 years of policies and political failures have led us here. Now is the time to act. From farmers to legislators, we'll have highlights from the hearing on Capitol Hill. As Western wildfires grow, livestock are getting killed by the blazes. Coming to a field near you. The feeding can often be mistaken for flea beetle feeding and corn. It's the unspoken truth about pests. And in John's world, R2R update. Now for the news, it's an issue playing out across the country right now. A lack of workers and a place that has been a problem for years is on the farm. The Senate Judiciary Committee holding a hearing this week, and it was focused on ag labor reform with an emphasis on the seasonal H-2A visa program and what can be done to reform it. The hearing featuring farmers, a former Department of Labor official, and the president of the National Pork Producers Council, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, also giving testimony in support of the Farm Worker Modernization Act, which has passed the House. The plan would grant temporary legal status to many seasonal farm workers. The hearing at times turning contentious. There's no way in hell we can legalize anybody until we first understand the effect it would have on the border and whether or not it would incentivize further illegal immigration. And Mr. Secretary, you're a fine man. I think you're very good at your job. But if you can't figure out that legalization without first securing the border doesn't create a problem, then you really don't understand this issue. But farmers and ag industry leaders who spoke focused on the need for more boots in the field and in the packing plants. 51% of the labor on dairy farms is from immigrants. The dairy farms that employ immigrant labor produce 79% of the U.S. milk supply. These are not jobs that are displacing other workers. I ran my dairy farm with my husband for over 40 years, and I can decisively say that the domestic workers just aren't there. Let's be honest with ourselves. The last 36 years of policies and political failures have led us here. Now is the time to act. It's not ethical, it's not economically viable, and it's not safe to kick this can down the road yet again. The president of the National Pork Producers Council telling legislators the H-2A program doesn't work very well for many pork producers because of its seasonality, saying it needs visa reform to reflect year-round needs of producers, adding if the labor shortages aren't addressed, it could lead to farms and packing plants shutting down and lead to food prices going up. Well, happening right now, dozens of wildfires continue to burn in the parched west. And meteorologists predict it may get worse with critically dangerous fire weather through at least Monday. This map shows you the active wildfires burning in the west right now. One of the most concerning, the so-called bootleg fire in Oregon. Smoke and ash from the massive wildfires have clouded the sky and led to air quality alerts in parts of the East Coast. Republican Congressman Cliff Benz of Oregon sharing this heartbreaking picture. That was on Facebook. It shows livestock and wildlife killed by the fire. Benz saying that ranchers' lives are being ruined, many of whom are risking their own lives to save their animals. Now this fire alone growing to become half of the size of Rhode Island. 
And an unusual concern for some farmers dealing with the wildfires. Whitney Klasna, a farmer and rancher in Lambert, Montana, she actually shared these pictures of a fire burning near her home in the northeast portion of the state. Whitney says they have been warned to watch for burning grasshoppers jumping the fire line. As we've reported, grasshoppers have been preying on dry wheat fields lately in that part of the country. North of the border, the story's much the same when it comes to barley. Keith Guy farms this land in Canada, just three miles from the border with Montana. He says this is what he's been seeing even after a full fertilizer program. 80,000 gophers and 3 million grasshoppers. He says this was not grazed or cut, and they've only seen 1.4 inches of rain. Continuing our drought watch, the Northern Plains Upper Midwest finally seen some rain last week, but since then, the rains have pushed to the south and drier air has moved in. Now heat from the west is moving east, as you can see in the outlook from NOAA. That's leading to corn and soybean reproduction issues in several key areas. It's the time of summer where we have our most critical temperature and moisture requirements for corn and soybeans. We do have concerns that 100 degree triple digit temperatures could reach as far east as eastern Nebraska and perhaps western Iowa. And that's getting into an area where soil moisture, although not critically low, is a bit more marginal. It's been on the dry side. And so heat and drying conditions are a concern across the upper Midwest. The upper Midwest on Friday seeing temperatures in the upper 90s from the eastern Dakotas east across Minnesota and into far western Wisconsin. And help is on the way for the timber industry from USDA. The agency announcing $200 million in pandemic assistance to timber harvesting and hauling businesses. It's part of USDA's Pandemic Assistance for Producers initiative. Now, to qualify, a timber business must have experienced losses at least 10% last year. The maximum amount that can be received directly is $125,000. Loggers and truckers can apply for the assistance through the Farm Service Agency starting tomorrow and through October 15th. Well, smoke-filled skies are proof how severe the wildfires are, but it's also been a layer of protection from the heat actually in the north as well as the northwest. And we'll have a check of weather and what's going on next. Well, from forecasted heat, to forecasted rain. What's on the radar for next week? For that, we head on over to Matt Engelbrecht filling in for my coffin this week. Matt? Well, the pattern isn't shifting all that much compared to what we had over the weekend. Going back to last week, the drought monitor is still showing a severe to extreme drought, if not more than that, up in the Dakotas. The heat and the humidity for the four corners and off on the west coast. Different story on the other side of the United States. You got the southeast, the east, seeing more of a dry, if not moderate drought. This actually shifted away from the coast the last few weeks. The yellow that you're seeing in North Carolina and Virginia, uh, plenty of water back into parts of the Mississippi, uh, up and down the Mississippi until you get back up here you know, towards the United States-Canada border. Even Michigan has a sliver uh, regarding that drought. Now in terms of relief, rainfall across the area, I'm not expecting any big systems. So when we're looking at the jet stream uh, through our Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, uh, the biggest trough that we're seeing isn't through the middle part of the country. And in fact, we're going to keep a ridge of high pressure over a good portion of the country. And that is a heat signature this time of year. So the trough that you see just off the United States, 
That's going to bring in some cooler weather, if not some wet weather for Vermont, Maine, upstate New York, even a little bit into Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But back here to the south and the west, you're looking at scorching temperatures back well above average, and that's going to also extend into the Midwest as well. Later in the week, Thursday and Friday, that trough continues to dig, but as that digs, the ridge will continue to build. So it's just going to get stronger and stronger where we're seeing that dry pattern. The more lines we have, the sharper the contrast in temperatures. So where we have that transition from the ridge back up here to some colder air, may see some showers and thunderstorms developing on the uh, northern and also on the eastern side of the ridge. Otherwise, you go into parts of Texas, Oklahoma, the four corners, uh, even you know, down near the Gulf of Mexico, hot and humid uh, the next couple of days uh, through our Friday, Saturday and Sunday. This pattern will start to break down into the weekend uh, by Saturday and Sunday. We get uh, some energy coming off of the Pacific uh, trough trying to build here. What that will do is finally break down the ridge, kick that ridge out and get us back into a pattern that is more favorable uh, for average high temperatures as well as some rain chances across the United States. Your map looks something like this uh, coming up on Monday, July 26. Uh, you got a low pressure system uh, trying to develop back down here. But remember that ridge that we just looked at is going to be strong and keep that low. The associated fronts back up to the north as well. Rain chances coming up for Monday and basically right along the east coast where we'll also see some mild temperatures. Fast forward to what we have coming up on Friday. Remember that's when we start to get more into a, a stronger ridge. High pressure is going to encompass a large portion of the United States now Friday, but also Saturday and Sunday. Just a few rain chances here and there. Leave you with this, their 30 day temperature forecast. Well, with rain in the forecast and rain over the past couple weeks, is the corn rally over? Matt Bennett and Dan Huber, they join us next. Welcome back to US Farm Report this weekend. Matt Bennett, Dan Huber joining us now. A lot to talk about with these markets. We've talked about drought. We've talked about wildfires impacting production in some areas. But Dan, when you look just at the past three months mm -hmm. of this corn market and you look at a chart of December corn futures, we have really been on this up and down cycle. But it, it, does it feel like the peak is in? I believe so. You know, and again, actually, even a couple months ago, I thought we probably were showing signs of exhaustion, you know, just really didn't react to positive news that you would expect. And, you know, since that time, the, the highs have been just a little bit lower. Not that we really collapsed to the downside, but boy, we, uh, it, you know, by the time you reach 4th of July, it's just difficult to bring a lot of new people in with interest in the corn market unless there is a widespread, you know, a high pressure system sitting in the middle of Iowa and Illinois. And that's not the case this year. So I think corn has kind of gone to the back seat. And you know, wheat picked up some of the slack, but boy, not all of it, not enough to at least help the corn market kind of get up and over the hump again. Yeah, Dan, that's a good point. And Matt, when you look at this corn market, I mean, the fact that we have seen some rains, you know, widespread rains over Iowa, we've seen the rains in Indiana, Illinois, some of those areas, we know that there's problem spots. But in those areas that have received rain, how good of a corn crop are we looking at right now, Matt? Uh, you, you want me to be vilified by a reviewer, I guess. But I can tell you in central Illinois, you know, we had a really good planting window, great, great weather, a really good emergence, uniform crop. Uh, things look really good. I'm not going to say it's for everyone, but, you know, getting out and uh, looking at ear size, uh, length, uh, girth, you know, uh, potential, uh, how many around are we looking at? And quite frankly, I think that uh, there's going to be several areas in the I-States into parts of Ohio 
that are going to be looking at record type yields. I'm not saying everyone. I, I definitely think there's going to be some record yields posted. There'll be some uh, uh, counties probably post some record yields. And so uh, whenever you try to quantify or handicap the, the entire crop, uh, you've got some huge disparities because uh, we obviously know that there's people, uh, for instance, in North Dakota talking about uh, 1988 type weather. And so, uh, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of things, I think that you're probably still looking at a record crop. I just don't think that it's maybe going to be quite to what the USDA is predicting just yet. Yeah, Dan, I mean, it will be a while before we see how this all evens itself out when we are seeing devastation in some areas like North Dakota, but talking to some farmers in Illinois and, and Iowa saying we're setting on a really big crop this year. So let's say that it does end up being above the trend line yields for corn. Does that change the price picture that we're looking at, Dan, significantly? Well, if we were above what the USDA currently has projected, certainly, certainly it would uh, be a, a real weight on the market. You know, the USDA at one seventy eight eight, or where, you know, with the the numbers were out there at this point in time, one seventy nine and a half. You know, and of course they haven't really brought it down down from that number yet. But I think everybody's assuming it's going to be a little less than that because you just can't have that many problems to the north and west. Uh, but that said. Uh, it would have to be a, uh, I, again, I think it would be a little bit shocking that we east of the Mississippi can pick up enough pace to compensate for some of the problems in the West. So, you know, trend line, I think, is probably uh, probably a, a hope at this point, not necessarily realistic. So, Well, when we look at this new crop uh, preparing for harvest, it seems like it's, it's far away, but it'll be here before we know it. Matt, I know you said you're getting a lot of questions right now. Are these the best prices I'm going to get, or is this a year that's going to pay to store? What's agmarket.net's view? Yeah, I think at this stage of the game, we're fairly heavily sold uh, as compared to maybe some folks as far as what do you think you're going to produce? We usually start out with APH, so it's somewhat of a conservative estimate. But right now we're going off of what do you predict your crop to be uh, based upon getting out in the field, consulting with your agronomist and so on. And so, you know, we're, we're around 60 percent actually of expected production on corn. Uh, the biggest questions I get are, do I store any corn at all this year if I can sell five dollars across the scale? And quite frankly, some people are thinking they're going to have a 220 to 250 type crop, maybe even some above that. Uh, you start crunching numbers there and you've got to ask yourself, what's the incentive to store? Uh, conversely, uh, if a lot of folks sell across the scale, which I expect uh, to see happen or uh, sell it ahead of time, uh, how much corn is going to be stored? I think with a big crop, there's still going to be plenty, but there will be parts of the country uh, where the basis is going to be extremely good on farther out, especially where we don't have much of a crop that will filter out into other areas as well. So it's a very good question, uh, but I always try to quantify it with, hey, how can I make money? Where can I lock in the most profitability? And that's how I try to make my, my best decision. Yeah, well, does Dan agree with that? We will ask him that question uh, later on U.S. Farm Report. Plus, we'll get into soybeans and even talk about wheat. That's coming up. Well, the White House's executive order earlier this month could have a sweeping impact on agriculture. And for insight into one of those issues, we head to Illinois to hear from John Phipps. The right to repair R2R movement in farm circles has kind of been swallowed up by consumer and political animus with big tech. The mildly surprising decision by the Biden administration to get involved in these consumer concerns by directing the USDA to take action and calling for the Independent Federal Trade Commission to address complaints makes the idea of some form of federal legislation much more likely, I think. 
Such a measure would probably override the separate and unique state R2R actions already in the process of enactment. Now, as readers of Top Producer Magazine know, I'm not a big fan of these ag-specific measures, believing them to be both overkill and encouraging blatant avoidance of intellectual property rights and environmental regulation. But when sucked into the growing animosity stemming from our love-hate relationship with computer technology and social media, my unpopular opinion matters even less. However, I think it should be said that I doubt both big tech and big machine are going to meekly abide by what they see as government-sanctioned theft. Nor do I think for a second they don't have engineers working overtime for ways to neutralize this economic loss. For example, just like the new iMacs have Apple's own unique processor instead of Intel's, Case could begin using proprietary hardware themselves. New iMacs also have fewer chips to swap. To combat, to combat chip tuning, one answer might be to bury that circuit in a much larger chip or board. Warranty fine print could add punitive costs to bypassing or replacing technology. Real-time monitoring of controller changes could be mandatory equipment. The machine industry could go to the software subscription business model, where I pay Microsoft 100 bucks a year to use Excel and cannot buy the actual software. It's not much of leaf from there to leasing, not selling new machines. Farmers can't complain about being able to alter what they don't really own. As an engineer, I am not unbiased in this debate. As a seller of intellectual property, and you can insert your own joke here about how intellectual it is, I have learned the disrespect farmers especially have for non-tangible work output. This is just one skirmish in a longer war, I'm afraid. As more of our economy is based on the sale and use of IP, I expect robust counteroffensive from IP creators and manufacturers. It is a conflict that will add inefficiency and cost to our business and strain the relationship between tool makers and tool users. Thanks, John. Well, Machine Repeat, he joins us with Tractor Tales next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're going to Pennsylvania to check out a Case 830 that's still a staple on the farm. 65 Case 830 diesel, Casematic Comfort King. This was bought, oh, it was probably two years old from what I was told. The hill, the next hill over, they had it and uh, it was the guy's father bought it, the buddy of mine, and if you look, it says Frank on the side, and it was Frank's tractor. When he passed away, the family called and said they were gonna scrap the tractor and to come get parts off it, and I said, you're not scrapping that tractor. So I went over and I bought it against my dad's wills. <laughs> he told me he'd never drive it. And I brought it home, and first thing we did, we drug it in the garage. Wheels were locked up, couldn't, it wouldn't shift. Didn't know what was wrong with it. Got it in the garage. It was winter time. The wheels were locked up because there was ice in there. But I got in and the shifter fork was broke for first and second. I found out that's a common problem. So I got on the internet and I found shifter fork and ripped that top out, put the new fork in, put that together. PTO was out. I did the PTO. The front end was wobbly. Did the front end. The three point didn't work, so I worked on the hydraulics. But it ran. <laughs> Dad uses this tractor for everything. <laughs> he said he would never drive it when I bought it. He said, don't get that, we don't need any more tractors. Well, there's 30 tractors here, so he's probably right, we don't need any more. 
but he said he'd never drive it, and now you can't pry him out of the seat. It cuts hay. I like the disc with it. I don't know why, but I like it the disc. I feel cultivate. I feel cultivating disc with it. It pretty much, and I hate to say it, I have kind of used it as my go-to anymore too for a, a bigger horse. Thanks, Greg. Well, with more and more farmers moving to reduce tillage on their farms, is it helping or hindering the ability to control pests? It's the unspoken truth about pests next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The unspoken truth about pests on U.S. Farm Report. Brought to you by AgriSure Traits. Combine the power of AgriSure Duracade plus AgriSure Viptera trait stacks to control 16 yield damaging above and below ground pests. Well, last week we talked about the crucial role weather plays with pest pressure each year. But what are the pests possibly coming to a field near you? It's the unspoken truth about pests this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Scouting for pests is part of the job for agronomist Mark Eats. The feeding can often be mistaken for flea beetle feeding and corn. This year, it isn't insects giving farmers fits, it's slugs. Slugs are actually a, it, not an insect, they're a gastropod, so they are a shellless snail. They do most of their damage in the early part of the growing season. No-till or minimum-till fields with plenty of cover, combined with cool spring weather, set up parts of northern Indiana for major slug damage. I have seen a field uh, not too far from where we're standing right now that was replanted four times. In the western Corn Belt? I think it's, uh, I think it's easier. From farmland has been no-till for decades, and the reduction in tillage practices has actually helped with insect control. It's very easy to just control insects through. If we need to, we can run it on the third crop with the mm -hmm. ground rig, you know, and, um, and then on the no-till side. From no-till to conventional tillage, farmers across Illinois are seeing one particular pest pop up more. One of those insects that we're seeing more of, and I don't really know the reason why, is wireworm. We're dealing with more wireworm every year. Farm Journal agronomist Ken Ferry says the issue is also a problem in fields farmers were forced to replant. And the population seem to be building or we find more fields with wireworm issues. Ferry says the reason remains a mystery, but up and coming pest pressure is something Ferry continues to watch. The other insect that we do see more of uh, each year in Illinois is the northern uh, rootworm beetle. It used to be more of a, an Iowa-Wisconsin bug, and it seems to be moving in, especially in the northern parts of the state, uh, and we'll have to be dealing with that as those pressures build. As certain pest pressures build, Farm Journal agronomist Missy Bauer says it's often geography-based. I think it depends really where you're at. I mean, certainly like here in Michigan, we're dealing with western bean cutworm way more than we used to. You know, 10 years ago, we didn't hardly have to deal with it all. Now it's something an every year thing we're paying attention to. There's another emerging issue happening in fields that tend to be sandier. Asiatic garden beetle is another new emerging pest for us here uh, in Michigan. Likes the sandier soils and really uh, can cause problems in uh, young corn and emerging corn, feeding on corn roots and give you a lot of unevenness out there in the fields. 
From soil type to seed type, there are other factors fueling insect populations and problems. We do have corn borer, corn borer building in the areas where guys have moved to the non-BT market uh, for market premiums. And if we do that for a series of years, we start to see corn borer pressures build in those areas. As seed companies invest in more modes of action, it's helping with even the pest problems popping up in BT fields. Many of the corn earworm in the south have become resistant to the types of BT that are used to manage them. So not only are we getting influxes of corn earworm, we're getting influxes of BT resistant corn earworm. A constant focus in research and development that may be always needed. And that's a very important point in general for people to keep in mind. Uh, nature always finds a way around our management strategies. But as traits continue to evolve to help farmers combat pests, Bauer says there are insects that farmers no longer battle every year. I'd say one pest we used to deal with, especially when I first started my career, um, European corn borer. Um, and I wouldn't say that we never have it. Some people have conventional corn, and if you have conventional corn, you still need to be out there and scouting it. Uh, but where the, so much corn is traded now, that seems to be one thing we just don't have to deal with very often. So I would say European corn borer, really because of the genetics and the traits uh, of what's uh, come to, uh, through the platforms. From genetics and traits to a change in production methods on farms across the country, pest problems can create financial woes. If the pressure is high enough where they're actually causing economic damage, you're going to be able to find them. Even as agronomists like Eads continue to battle pests, both known and unknown each year. So the chances of this happening are actually very low, but the chances of having to maybe do a replant, do something like that, it is increased, but not significantly. Well, earlier on the show, Matt Bennett had advice if you're a farmer it can sell corn above $5 at the elevator. But does Dan Huber agree? That's next. Welcome back, Dan Huber, Matt Bennett joining us now. All right, Dan, I asked this of, of Matt earlier, but if you are harvesting this fall, you mm -hmm. can sell that crop for over $5 when it comes to corn. Does it pay to just go ahead and sell that then? Or do you think it's going to pay to store this year? Well, you know, of course, part of that's going to come back to what your local basis levels are. But you know, when you look at just an 11 cent spread from December to July corn, it's really, I mean, it's not, it's not like soybeans where it's inverted, but it's certainly not offering a lot of carry. Yes, if you have farm storage and your basis levels are not better than average, you know, certainly it probably would be behoove you to uh, go ahead and, uh, you know, sell it into the futures months. Now, now, again, that's not an excuse, not necessarily to price it. You would probably still want to sell against the July futures and, uh, and let the basis come to you. But boy, it, it is not a, it, it's a case by case situation. Like I say, it's going to depend on the basis in your locale. And if you've got stronger than normal basis levels, boy, there's very little incentive to store this crop at this point. Yeah, and Matt, when it comes to soybeans, are you looking at a similar situation? I mean, we still have a lot of production left when it comes to this soybean crop, a lot that can happen when it comes to weather. Kind of what's the mentality right now when it comes to soybeans? 
You know, the thing with soybeans, obviously it's an August crop, just as you said, but uh, you know, you're, you're looking, as we talked today above 1350 basis, the Nove, and uh, you know, you could have a pretty, uh, what I would call off crop and still uh, make more money on soybeans selling at 1350 plus than what we've seen the last several years. And so there is a little bit of a luxury there, but I know as a producer uh, myself, that it's kind of tough to sell what you don't have just yet, especially whenever August can certainly wreak havoc on you. So I think the best thing to do if a producer looks at these types of profit levels, there's a lot of different ways that they can manage some risk without fully endearing themselves to physical bushels. So I'd highly recommend some risk management at these price levels. But with that being said, you know, uh, we're razor thin margins. If we don't have a really good August, I don't think these beans are going to completely uh, uh, capitulate to the downside. Well, that's the supply side. But Dan, what about the demand side? I mean, do you think that it will be hard to hit some of the demand numbers that we saw in soybeans last year when we look kind of, kind of you know, what's on the books today? You know, the uh, I guess one of the big questions, of course, and the driver in the soybean market this past year has been has been China, and of course has been la largely absent from our market since Brazil has uh, harvested their crop. And you know, and, and even with Brazil, we tend to uh, we tend to forget, you know, with all the focus on what's happened with the second corn crop down there and the drought that's that's affecting them. They produced a record soybean crop, and I think you know for the most part that's probably could even be a little bit larger that has been factored into the prices here already. So you know they could remain absent from our market for some time, and I think realistically we have got it factored in. They were going to continue. I, everybody I, I think built up to the fact that well, it looks like with the demand they have right now, they're going to live up to the agreement they made a year ago as far as the U.S. products are going to bring in. And you know right now I think that's very questionable, particularly if they move over to corn and wheat, uh, which they have done as of late. And, uh, you know, they're just not going to put the dollars of sales out there that we really expected them to. But Matt, if we do see soybeans kind of come under a little bit that what USDA is expecting right now, how much wiggle room does that give us on the demand side? Well, the bottom line right now is that, uh, you know, if you use the 50.8 that the USDA is, is putting out there with demand where it's at, you're still looking at a sub 200 carryout. And so, you know, if you come in, let's say below a 50 bushel yield, uh, you don't have any wiggle room. And so uh, certainly the function of high price is going to be to curb demand somewhat. But, you know, with, uh, to add on to what Dan said, you know, when, when you've got issues in Argentina with extremely low river levels and they're having a hard time getting beans shipped out, uh, it's certainly is going to provide headwinds for that part of the world uh, to be able to provide beans. Uh, and I'm like, Dan, it might take a while until uh, the Brazilians are able to come to and be able to satisfy the market as far as world exports are concerned. So I like to think that our exports uh, are going to actually grow. I think that the Chinese are going to be in buying soybeans and soybean meal. Uh, and I think moving forward, uh, you've got to ask yourself what it's going to take to get this uh, uh, rally completely stopped. And I think you would need a monstrous yield. So uh, to answer your question, if it's it's a lower yield. I think that you've got very supportive prices. Matt and Dan, thank you both so much for joining us this weekend. Stay with us. When we come back, the shark farmer joins us for stories with the shark farmer. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. Well, this week I was traveling across Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, and one thing was evident. It is prime time for crop dusters and aerial applicators. And this week, Shark Farmer has a peek into a crop duster who's doing what she loves. 
As a farmer, we often tout what generation we are. I mean, for instance, I'm a fifth generation farmer. My kids are the sixth generation to live here on the home farm. It's not that I'm sitting here bragging about it for myself. It's that I'm you know, very proud of what my ancestors accomplished, what they did, what they were able to pass on. But it's not just agriculture, it's not just farmers. There's multi-generational salesmen, multi-generational agronomist, multi-generational nutritionalist. But what about a multi-generational aerial applicator? I got a chance to interview Emily Daniel. She's from New Jersey. She's a third generation pilot, but she's one of a handful of female aerial applicators in the entire country. Aerial applicator is what a lot of people refer to as a crop duster. And that's exactly what Emily's grandfather was when he returned for World War II as a pilot, was a crop duster. You're actually spreading dust on the crops instead of today we're using spray. It's an antiquated term, and I'm sure if I was an aerial applicator, I would want to do away with crop duster too. The technology that these pilots have is amazing. The satellite GPS to so where they know exactly where they're going, the high-tech sprayers they have to make sure that the exact amount of product is going exactly where it needs to go. It's, it's a far cry uh, from what it used to be when I was growing up. In fact, I remember the, the aerial applicators would toss out a roll of toilet paper when they got to the end. And then when they turned around, they would know where to start up again by where that toilet paper was. Or better yet, I remember my dad had me standing on a road with a flag. And my sister was on the next road a mile away with another flag. <laughs> when the plane would come over me, I would take 20 steps down the road and hold up the flag and that way the plane would know to line up exactly overhead of me as it was spraying. <laughs> Don't worry, it was the 80s. It was the 80s. I mean, safety was kind of secondary or third. It, it's fine. I'm fine. I feel fine. I feel... Emily says at a minimum speed of 100 miles an hour, she can get within three feet of an object. So if it's on the farm, I will get as close as I need to. I'll get within three feet. You know, I want to be able to get Damn. into that field and get, Damn. get as low as I can. Three feet at 100 miles an hour? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you want to get into the field, the only time I don't do that where I'll do a really steep dive is if there's, you know, a bunch of houses and I can tell they're not the actual farmer. I will do my best to stay away from there and not fly. I would appreciate that, and so I don't do that to other people. I think I'll just stick to driving a tractor myself. <laughs> Emily's not only a good pilot, but she's a pioneer in a male-dominated industry. But she did not let that keep her from following her dreams. And now she wants other women to follow her in this exciting industry. Thanks, Rob. And to hear more of Shark Farmer's stories, including his popular podcast, just go to sharkfarmer.com. All right, up next, John Phipps. Just what is carry out anyway? Join Andrew McRae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture, brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, 
the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. In agriculture, there's often a lot of jargon. And when it comes to the markets and our marketing roundtables, it's almost like that jargon can be on steroids. John tackles a viewer's question on the matter this weekend in customer support. From Randy Thompson in Eugene, Oregon. I've learned a lot about farming and agriculture from watching the show and am able to understand most of the industry's buzzwords from their context. However, there are a few terms I've yet to fully grasp. I could Google them, of course, but thought it would be nicer to hear you explain one or more of them in your customer support segment. The main term I would love to hear about is carryout. What is it and how does it relate to supply and demand? This is a great idea, Randy. We tend to get a little jargon happy here and explaining agriculture to non-farmers is an important part of our purpose. Let's take a look at a typical supply and demand report and I'll give some hints on how to read it. Here is the WASDE, World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report, published June the 10th by the USDA. Now the first thing to know is crops are accounted for by marketing year. This is like a fiscal year for a business and coincides with the traditional beginning of harvest. For corn and soybeans, the marketing year starts one September. For wheat and barley, it's one June. Now, I have no idea why hogs and eggs began 1 December. At prescribed intervals, the USDA generates what is like a profit and loss report. In finance, beginning with the money you have on hand, you add the money earned, subtract expenses, and arrive at money at the end of the period. For commodity accounting, carryover, also called carryout, serves a similar function, showing our actual or estimated commodity balance at the end of the year. Beginning stocks are clearly what you have at the start of the marketing year and carry out how many bushels at the end. Obviously, the carry out becomes the carry in or beginning stocks for the following year. Carry out is watched closely, just like you watch your bank balance. Some useful calculations are to compare it with previous years or to total consumption, which is shown here. This is called the stocks to use ratio. It shows how much supply we have relative to demand and the size of our cushion, so to speak. It drives market psychology, similar to your checking account balance fluctuations. Every market participant is trying to estimate, one, what the carryout will be, two, what the trend is compared to past data and future projections, and three, what other marketers are thinking. Like predicting other open markets, there are strongly held opinions involving large sums of money at stake. Before the 1 September report, I'll explain some of the other numbers and why we love to argue about them. Thanks, John. And remember, you can send your comments or your questions to John at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, some big news. Here's a hint. It ties to one popular ag organization who sports the blue and gold. We'll have details next. Well, it's a movement that caught momentum last year during the pandemic, the hashtag FarmOn, now a symbol of persistence in agriculture. And we're continuing to celebrate that movement this summer. 
Farm Journal and National FFA Foundation just announced the second annual Farm on Benefit concert, which includes Easton Corbin and some of country music's biggest stars. It's all to raise money for FFA and recognize the commitment that FFA has to growing the next generation of leaders. The concert will actually air Monday, September 20th at 7 Central. And here's one of the best parts. Your ffa -er can be part of it. Just text a picture of them in their blue jacket with the words Farm On to 31313. Again, that's Farm On at 31313, or you can actually put hashtag Farm On on social media and we'll see it there. And don't forget, join us for the Farm On Benefit concert this September 20th at 7 p.m. Here's your chance to enter your farm dog in Farm Journal's America's Best Farm Dog Contest. It's brought to you by New Holland. To enter, just head to the website on your screen, agweb.com slash America's Best Farm Dog. Read the contest rules and then share your favorite picture of your pooch and tell us what makes them the top dog. Now you have until Friday, August 6th to enter. Voting for the top 10 finalists starts August 7th. The winner will get a $400 Visa gift card and a customized painted canvas of their dog. We'll also announce the winning Pup Thursday, August 26th during Farm Journal Field Days. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend and tuning in. Make sure to tune in next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.